Empire. Are you ready for socially distanced baseball? Chris Giles was already thinking that way anyway. You ask someone, you know, below 30 what it is that they appreciate, um, and it's all around new and different experiences and flexibility and the whole notion that they would sit in a single seat for a game, let alone have the same experience over and over and over. Uh, is just completely unattractive to them. The former COO of the A's, now CEO of the Greenfield Sports Group, is ready to play ball, whatever that looks like. This is the Future Sport Podcast. I'm Bram Weinstein. Chris Giles worked for an organization that had plans for a smaller venue in the first place. Now amid a pandemic, how we will go about and want to fill seats is an interesting new way of thinking about interacting with live events. And Chris Giles will talk about all of that. Meantime, what else is a product that is worth the investment right now? Lead Sports founders Christoph Sonnen and Alex Benti talk about the sports tech VC world. But first, the future is now for innovators. Our guest this week is Josh Walker, who's the co-founder and president of the Sports Innovation Lab, where he is overseeing the company's innovative and proprietary market intelligence platform. They just put out a new research report where they're proposing a new industry mindset, which would redefine fan engagement. Hey, Josh, how are you? I'm doing well, Brad. Thanks for having me. I mean, this is an odd time to talk about fan engagement. There are no sports, so this is a very, very unusual time. Um, Could you kind of talk about your take on what is happening in the world and where our sports went. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to, but I'm also, uh, I think this is actually the perfect time to be talking about fan engagement. Uh, we have been doing the last three years research in this space that really tried to focus the industry on how we have to evolve traditional sports. And uh, a lot of people in the industry right now are talking about it as a blackout or a hiatus, a period of time where we have nothing to do and we're going to have to wait traditional sports to return. Our whole philosophy at the Sports Innovation Lab is that it's actually the opposite. It's the time to plan and the time to respond to what's happening, which is you had an over-reliance on linear broadcast and media rights as a way to make money in this industry. So we're hoping that the leaders in this space will really focus on the convergence of digital and linear and uh, start giving fans more control and, you know, agency in the way that they enjoy their lives. So let's talk about that a little bit. Um, giving the fans more control and agency. What do you mean by that? Well, at the Sports Innovation Lab, we talk about the fan as being a fluid fan. Um, and that means that the diehard fan, the, the fan that we all traditionally think of in the sports industry is that fan that'll come to any game, any time, put a brown bag on their head, win or lose, and, and put their butt in a hard box for four hours is really not the path to growth but that there's a next generation of fans, which we call the fluid fans, which are open to change and empowered to choose and really continuously evolving because of all the different technology they get access to outside of sports. Think of voice, Alexa, think of their gaming consoles, think of social media. Their expectations of what live entertainment experience feels like is very different. And so we have to, as an industry, stop thinking of social and digital as these adjuncts or these like, <clears throat> you know, shoulder content pieces or initiatives that don't really fit into the linear broadcast. And we have to really start giving those fans a little bit more to do while they're watching and enjoying lives. So I, I'm with you, like 100%. I think the question for the companies, right, is if their prime um, monetary resource remains linear or rights, how do they do this and how do they transition to what you're talking about? It's very difficult. I mean, it's a it's a full-scale cultural change, and other industries have had to adjust um, the same way that the sports entertainment industry is going to have to do that. The primary uh, piece of advice that we give them is to start thinking culturally about how you bring those initiatives together. Um, if you think about traditional sports, and you were on the broadcast side, especially you know back in your ESPN days, the, the concept here is that those 
esports initiative that a lot of these groups have launched. You know, a lot of traditional teams have bought teams or started franchises, and they said, well, this is our way to reach younger fans. And they did that basically to say, you know, this is our hedge. If esports takes off, we'll have something in the market and we'll have a play. But they've really set those things up as separate initiatives. There's different general managers, there's different directors, there's different business, different sponsors. And we think that's a mistake. So our advice right now, especially in this period of time, is to start bringing those groups together so they can learn from each other, uh, trade tricks, uh, trade uh, process. And you're starting to see that. I mean, the NASCAR stuff that everybody's playing to right now, which is a really good example of convergence, um, is this idea that NASCAR has been using their iRacing series as a way to train their drivers for a long time. So when they have to respond very quickly, Culturally, they were already set up, digitally they were already set up to bring their real drivers, the NASCAR Cup drivers, into a virtual environment and make it feel and seem like a real race. So we had Steve Myers from iRacing on a couple weeks ago. He was great. Obviously, there was a clear opportunity here. The broadcast was amazing. I mean, they seem to be more ready to do something like this on the fly than just about anybody else. I guess the question I have for you is... When NASCAR comes back and there are the real races, where's the opportunity for them to do both of the things that you're talking about? Well, I don't think it goes away. And I think that's a really good question because I think that there is a mindset that we're all just waiting for traditional sports to come back. We're going to get back to normal. Um, I don't think it's probably to say that there's probably no new normal. There's probably a very different way of even creating the races that they've been producing. Uh, live with much more fan interactivity on digital streams that are integrated into the into the broadcast. And you know, I think of what Drone Racing League did last night um, with their sim trials. Again, another sort of esports, virtual sports kind of experience that's streaming on a digital platform. But integrated into that was a FanDuel fantasy lineup and betting um, experience. And if you think about the way that you know. The NFL, the NBA, all those other platforms uh, produce their live games. If you want to do FanDuel, DraftKings, any MGM sort of experience, it's usually on a different website, it's on a different mobile app, it's in a different place. Uh, I think what you're asking is, is a really good question, which is where does the monetization come from that when you bring it into the linear broadcast? And what people have been fixated on is the ROI of doing that and really what I think we should be fixated on is, is this what the fans want? And I think clearly they want to be involved. They want to be talking to the athletes. They want to be engaging with them. They want to see themselves as part of that broadcast. Not everybody does, right? There's still yeah. some passive viewers. But a lot of people do want to see themselves as part of the process. Yeah, the immersive experience. Um, a lot of times when we talk to people, they talk about second screen. And it sounds like what you're saying is is it really shouldn't be thought of that way, that it should be all integrated into one, if possible. I guess the trick is figuring out what that looks like. I do think that is the trick, but I also think it's a new skill. Um, I think that the way that sports has developed talent, uh, even the, you know recruited talent, has been <clears throat> to get people that want to come in and work. Uh, I think you know, your generation, my generation, we're of the same sort of time period where if you got into sports, you were lucky straight out of college because you wanted to work in sports. And you made your way up, you did the grind, and, and eventually you became somebody who was in charge. What I think has to happen is that we have to bring in people from outside of the industry, a lot of cinematic sort of skill sets, a lot of music and live entertainment, experiential, uh, you know, people bringing those skills into the mix. Uh, it, it, it's not hard to see. It's not crazy to imagine. You don't need a crystal ball. Um, people look at what's happening on Twitch, what Netflix is doing with the watch parties. These are examples. They're not the solution, but they're examples of how that mindset really does impact the I agree with you on all of this. Um, and from the perspective of the rights holders, I, I could see where they're going. These are all incredible ideas. Do you get the sense that the leagues will play ball with this stuff? that they'll hand over the keys to their game broadcast, the NBA, the NFL, the NHL, and ESPN, CBS, NBC, can do the things you're talking about without their permission? No, I don't. Um, I think there's going to be two camps. Um, I'm, I, this is where the pessimist and the realist of me comes into play, which is uh, I'm hoping that this is a shock to the system. And 
you know, nobody wants to think of this situation as having a silver lining. There's nothing good about it. Um, but the, the idea that you can sit around and fixate on splitting your media rights a million different ways so that you're monetizing every piece of it without thinking about having to integrate it, um, I, I think those days are leaving us. I don't know how quickly, you know, I had Dan Cohen from Occupan on an AMA the other day. This is a multi, multi-billion dollar industry, and it's not going to happen overnight, but if you don't think that the leagues are having these conversations, triaging their archive footage, thinking about their digital, you know, uh, experiences and platforms and how to bring that all together, I, I think we're all being naive that they're not in a mode that much more willing to consider this than they have in the past. I think the leaders will emerge, and, and there will be definitely folks that that start to take this a lot more serious. Oh yeah, I mean, listen. I mean, I don't think it's any coincidence at all that the NFL and the NFLPA got a deal done in advance because they know the rights are coming up. And of course, no one anticipated what's going on right now with this pandemic. But that said, we're all expecting football to come back, and we don't know what it's going to look like when it comes back, and they renegotiate rights deals. Yeah, I, I, I think that was fortuitous for both of those parties. They happen to both be clients of the Sports Innovation Lab. And the way that they have been posturing over the years, I think, has changed quite a bit. Um, there's a much better willingness and a ability to see eye to eye on how the rising tide all boats kind of thing here with, with the players and how they're becoming their own media channels. big piece of what we think about when we think about the fluid and is how the app themselves have become media channels, and they are distributing content with much better efficiency often than linear broadcast. So how do you take advantage of those personalities? And I'm not just talking about the stars, right? You know, the NFLPA is a great example of this. They have their Tom Brady's, they have their Russell Wilson's, but they also have hundreds of other athletes that can activate and, you know, mobilize fans at a local level. And I think that the NFL and the NFLPA are starting to really understand that. Um, you mentioned gambling earlier. Um, clearly, things are going to slow down a little bit as, as governments deal with priorities and, and don't deal with gambling laws um, at the moment. But eventually, that ball will start rolling back downhill again. Um, how do you see that getting integrated now where some states have legalized it and others haven't? And in the future, when I'm going to guess the majority of the states in the country have legalized it? Well, I'm, I might take a, a, a different view on that. Maybe this is summary. Right, maybe the the need for these states to generate near near term revenue makes them fast track some of the uh, resistance that has really helped certain states keep this at bay when they've negotiated integrity fees or they've tried to tax everything. Maybe they see this as you know not only a way to get their communities back engaged in, in things of that nature, but really as a way to also jumpstart some new revenue sources for their states. Um, a lot of the countries can be hurting, and they're going to be looking for ways to fund youth sports. They're going to be you know, looking for ways to bring community programs back, certainly support their hospitals and healthcare workers. I'm hoping that sports betting is talked about in that context and that it streamlines more states coming online and in a, and in a responsible way, but also the way that most of the industry wants this to happen, which is through mobile. Um, and I think that the geofencing, the you know historical 75-mile radius for marketing and sort of different initiatives that have really blocked some of these sports betting properties from, from getting traction um, might go away. And, uh, and I'm hoping that this is, that is a byproduct of this, not, not the opposite. Tell me about the Innovation Lab. What's the background of it? Why'd you start it? And what is the purpose of it? Well, it's, it's a situation where I was um, working in technology. I was selling uh, sports platforms to different teams and, and brands to try to help kids learn uh, math by using real-time sports data. I was integrating the sport radar stuff, and we were trying to help kids learn math by using real-time stats. And people told me that there were some great uh, sports leaders in my, in, in my industry uh, in, in Japanese uh, a pro football player by the name of Isaiah Kaczynski and and also uh, the woman that I eventually partnered with and, and built the lab with, which is Angela Ruggiero, um, was a four-time Olympian. And when I met with her, you know, she, she, she saw such a bigger picture. She was on the IOC. She, as I mentioned, a four-time Olympian. She has a global mindset. 
And what Angela pushed me to think about was all the decisions she makes on the IOC as a, as a leader in sports. Where does she get information to understand the difference between what a TikTok does or a Twitter does or an Instagram does or an overtime does? All these emerging platforms are coming out. She's, you know, she's at the table. There's a lot of old white men sitting around her. There's not a lot of diversity of thinking. And she had no resource for that. So we, we said, look, every other industry has market research. They have a Nielsen, a Gartner, a Forrester, somebody that can make sense of everything for them, especially when it comes to technology. And that was my background. And her background is in sports leadership, administration, strategy. She was on the LA 24 bid as chief strategy officer. So she pressed me to really think about the platforms that could operate at scale across business. And we started writing research to uh, give shape to a lot of the trends that we saw. The Sports Innovation Lab's latest report is called The Fluid Fan is here. Josh Walker is the co-founder and the president. Thanks so much for joining us, Josh. Be safe, be well. You too. Up next, Chris Giles of the Greenfield Sports Group on the live sports as a subscription model. This is the Future Sport Podcast. Our guest this week is Chris Giles. He's the CEO of the Greenfield Sports Group. He is the former COO of the Oakland A's, and he is credited with creating the first sports-as-a-service subscription with the baseball team. Hey, Chris, how are you? I'm doing excellent. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. Um, At the time we were speaking, obviously, this interview can't start without one mentioning that you're in the Bay Area. And today is the first day of a full literal lockdown in the area that you live. Um, could you share with us just a little bit what the experience has been like out on the West Coast? Yeah, they're calling it uh, shelter in place and asking us to uh, stay in our homes except for you know essential life-sustaining activities. So you can still go to the grocery store and the doctor's office and get your prescriptions and those sort of things. Uh, but they're just really encouraging us to... Uh, stay in our homes. It's not a police state or anything like that. It's just, you know, really empowering each citizen to do their part to to prevent the spread of uh, COVID-19. Yeah. Um, I want to, you know, um, ask you about your experience with the A's as well and just see your point of view of having professional teams forced to and choosing to shut down operations, not play games. Who knows when the baseball season is going to start or when the NBA playoffs are going to come back. Um, just your general sense of seeing it from the point of view of the people who operate those teams. How do they kind of view what's happened and, and how do they look ahead? I mean, given what we know about uh, the spread of the virus, I really do think it's the only option. Um, I think the really challenging time is going to be, you know, once this, you know, once we you know, get through this time, really convincing fans that it's, you know, a safe form of alternative uh, alternative in entertainment going forward really and in terms of the season um i guess it depends how long this lasts but if you're the oakland a's how do you reschedule 30 60 70 games do do you have any sense of how a team is going to kind of work through that this summer or fall i can't see them you know if it goes on for any prolonged period of time longer than a few weeks um i can't see the league being able to schedule all of the games. I think then we end up in a situation where uh, we're dealing with a shortened regular season. Yeah, I I don't know how you slide a schedule in that sport when you play every day. It just seems almost like a near impossibility, but I guess we'll see what happens here down the road. With with baseball, you get the weather factor, too. Yeah. I mean, there's only so many months of the year that you can play in in some of the colder markets. And just as... as the COO of a team, um, can you put into context, like financially, what this means for the sports world, what is going on right now? Depending on the team, it's anywhere, you know, between a half a million dollar and a $2 million hit per game, Um, just from ticket revenue alone. And then you're looking at, um, you know, meaningful impacts on your corporate partnership business and, you know, the conversations that you're having with those partners, 
um, a lot of times will end up being, you know, make goods in future years as opposed to refunds like you have to do with your fans. Um, but it'll have a meaningful impact on the business. And then, you know, you're going to have to have the conversations with your television partners on what appropriate make goods are there. So this could be, you know, across professional sports, you know, somewhere in the hundreds of millions to billion dollar hit, in my opinion. Yeah, and then eventually all these make goods. So it la- this is something that's going to have an after effect in the sports world from a business perspective for years. Like this is not something that once we go back to work, everything just clears itself up. I believe so. Yeah. Um, all right, let's talk about the future a little bit here. Let's talk about your company. Let's talk about what you did with DAs and, you know, assuming that sports are going to come back and hopefully um, in the near term. Um, what was your experience with the A's like in building the sports as a service model that you wanted to try to replicate with your company? Everything that I was seeing uh, indicated that fans were demanding increased flexibility in their membership platform. And so it really started with that key insight, understanding that um, the next generation of fan uh, wasn't interested in the same thing that our traditional fans were. You ask a traditional fan, um, you know, what are the things that they value most about their membership with the team? And they'll tell you, you know, they take a lot of pride in their seat ownership. They love the consistency of their experience. They love uh, the community of people around them, seeing the same people. Um, you ask someone, you know, below 30 what it is that they appreciate. Um, and it's all around new and different experiences and flexibility and the whole notion that they would sit in a single seat for a game, let alone have the same experience over and over and over, uh, is just completely unattractive to them. So it really did start with a consumer-based insight that we needed to provide much more flexibility to our fans. Um, and then I started researching subscription models and understood from a you know inventory utilization standpoint, there's a lot of benefits from a truly exclusive uh, offering. There was a lot of benefits I mean, most teams package all of the benefits of being a season ticket member into the ticket, and then that ticket is resold on the secondary market, creating really what are one-off single-game membership substitutes, and I think that is the fundamental flaw with the current system. Okay, so how did you go about changing that when you were with the Oakland A's? starts with really a thorough examination of how you can provide truly exclusive benefits to your members. Um, And with the A's, you know, at the Coliseum, we didn't have a lot of, you know, really cool club spaces that we could, you know, limit entry to for members only. So we, you know, started racking our brains and came up with a couple of what we called like truly non-transferable member exclusive benefits. So the first one was we gave everyone who is a member general admission access to the games that were not included in their package. Um, two, we offered them 50% off food and beverage, 25% off merchandise, uh, 66% off parking. Huh. Um, all of these sort of benefits were really designed to truly differentiate the experience that a member has from someone who is buying on the secondary market so that we can provide that value proposition to have a direct relationship with the team, which has a lot of downstream benefits for teams. So you've changed the model from the idea of we're not going to get a season ticket holder, or we will with some people, but younger people like the idea of the flexibility of being a member and can kind of come and go without the pressure of having a ticket to every single game. Yeah, and you can offer that at a price point that's actually achievable uh, to a lot of younger consumers. And you can do it in a way where the opportunity cost of providing that benefit is minimal to the team because you're not giving them a reserve seat location really far in advance and preventing, you know, otherwise, you know, single game sales or uh, fixed seat membership purchases of that seat location. So tell me a little bit about the seating then. So under this plan, if you don't have a reserve seat, where do you sit when you go to the game? So from an A's perspective, there's a few thousand seats in the outfield that are all uh, deemed general admission seats. Um, There is a bunch of social areas. There's a place called the Treehouse, which is like an outdoor bar patio type area. Um, There's the Stomping Ground, which is a family area. Um, But really, the reason why I founded Greenfield was really to build a software platform to enable teams to do this well. Yeah. We had to make lots of programmatic sacrifices in Oakland to make the approach work. 
under the constraints of a ticketing system that was really designed um, to sell tickets as products in a pretty traditional sense. Do you get any sense that by doing this that teams would collaborate with one another and have a club that would allow, say, a baseball fan to go to many different venues and not have to buy the separate memberships or tickets for those specific clubs? I think it could happen down the road. I think we're a little early in the life cycle of this approach um, for teams to do things outside of their own ecosystem. Um, But I could see teams in a single market uh, getting together to kind of form kind of a a market type path where you could go to, you know, let's say in the Bay Area, you know, the Warriors, the Giants, the A's, the Niners, the Sharks, and have some sort of you know, limited accessibility to each of those. Yeah. Um, but I think that's well down the road. And they'd have to play ball with one another because when the Warriors are the best team in basketball and the other team is struggling, the idea that they're going to play ball with one another with allowing access is probably a difficult thing to navigate as well. Yeah, I think the the real, um, you know, piece we have to understand is kind of what would, how would that affect, you know, traditional core memberships? And I think when it's all within one team's ecosystem, um, that analysis is much e- is much easier to do because you don't have to then figure out how to split up the pie of incoming subscription revenue. So, I mean, here's the big question, which is, you know, and I think for people my age, I'm middle-aged, and I still like to just go to the game, and I like to see the game. Are, are you sensing that generally younger generations are saying the game is not enough for us any longer? I think we're seeing indications that that's the case, or... Um, put differently, uh, that they're looking for, you know, more enhancements to their experience. I think some of the things they struggle with in in the focus groups that I've done is the linear arrangement of seats puts everyone shoulder to shoulder and really only allows them to socialize with someone on their right and someone on their left. And so whether or not that means the game is not enough is is kind of a different question than they prefer, you know, different, you know, amenities in terms of how they supplement the game where, you know, a beer and a hot dog and shoulder to shoulder seating, you know, may not be enough. But I also think we're in a time where we do have both of these consumers in the marketplace and whatever solution ends up winning in terms of the right approach to membership going forward cannot just, you know, completely shift towards the people that want this new flexible experience teams have to have a dynamic way to offer both types of experiences to their customers. That's interesting. So, I mean, I guess like rearranging seating in a stadium outside of these special areas that you're talking about, that cannot be easy to accomplish. Do you kind of picture down the road that the way stadiums are built, that they're going to take into consideration that the seating can be non-traditional? I mean, we're already seeing it in renovations and new venue designs you're seeing teams put in you know these four top kind of half round tables you're seeing teams you know put in you know outdoor couch type settings you're seeing more teams have you know general admission seating options i think you know it used to be that general admission described an experience that you would only accept in an environment where all of the seats were sold but you absolutely had to be at the event um, I think now we're getting to a point where general admission really means social admission. And it just describes an experience that is more social and more flexible and not necessarily one that requires you to stand the whole game or, you know, occupy a staircase that was never designed to view the game from. I think it's just, you know, a reality of the, of the flexibility that's being demanded um, by the younger generation of fans. Hmm. Um, would you mind calling the airline industry? Because some of these ideas sound like they would really fit on airplanes for all of us as well. (laughs) We'd love to rearrange some of that seating on there if you could work that one out. That'd be just terrific. (laughs) Um, They've got a little little more confined space than most... (laughs) Most sports venues. Yeah, but you know what? You are expressing creativity, and I think we all appreciate the idea of that creativity right about now. It would be nice. Let's do it. Um, what What else are, are younger generations telling you? So they want to, what, move around the venue more than, say, the older fan. They don't want to be planted in their seat. They're looking for different food options. Are there other entertainment options that they are telling you about that are going on subsequently and concurrently with the game that they're interested in? Yeah, I think the last frontier was, you know, the connected experience. And I think venues have done a really good job of enhancing that capability. 
I think now it's coming down to flexibility in terms of when am I coming to the game? This is a generation that's making that decision, you know, even up to the last few hours, the afternoon of the event, they're deciding, you know, whether or not they want to come. And it's really up to teams to begin to innovate their membership platforms uh, to a point where there is that strong incentive for that younger consumer looking for flexibility to have a direct relationship with the team. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's such an interesting time as everyone tries to navigate this. And kind of to your point, you know, there are people like myself or even you know, an older generation that is accustomed to things being the way they are. We're accustomed to watching a game on television the way we watch it. We're talking often about second screen experiences, but they seem foreign. So I guess there is room still for both of these ideas, right? Absolutely. I, I think, the, you know, the, the live sports experience still... Um, you know, has a lot of appeal. And I think, you know, if we do nothing, will, you know, very powerful leagues and teams continue to, to do well? I think, yes. I think where we're starting to see it is kind of the marginal teams are struggling and really looking for ways to innovate, ways to make a membership with the team a lot more attractive to a brand new audience. And in a lot of cases, that means, Give me an option that is not the same experience over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, in normal times, games are playing and rights fees are still happening and, and all this stuff is going on. And business, I would assume, is still very good for all the major sports leagues like baseball and football, hockey, basketball. Um, of all these things that you're talking about, is it tough to motivate people within the leagues to want to implement these type of things when they're saying, you know, it might not be perfect, but business is pretty good here? I think if you look at this as a binary thing, like, hey, let's go from the traditional model to what I would call utopia, where the market's going in 10 years in terms of flexibility, in terms of, you know, you know member-exclusive benefits. That's my way of putting uh, transfer-restricted benefits in a much more positive light. Um, I think you end up in a situation where the answer is, teams are already innovating along the spectrum on their own. And so we've just finished a study of MLB membership programs that we've published. We've finished a study on MLS and NBA that have yet to be published. uh, And we're doing the NHL and the NFL now. And it is very clear along the spectrum of flexible seating, member exclusive experiences, these social areas and implying basic subscription tactics through monthly billing and auto-renewing membership, that teams are already sprinting in this direction. Mm. But no, there's very few teams that are doing it all at once, right? Let's, let's start doing monthly subscriptions. Let's start doing, you know, auto-renewing memberships. And so they're moving along what I'm calling the sports-as-a-service spectrum, independent of there being a real kind of powerful software tool to allow them to do it in a scalable way. Some really, really fascinating stuff that you are working on. I'm really interested to see um, where this goes with you guys down the road. Chris Giles is the CEO of the Greenfield Sports Group. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Up next, Christoph Sonnen and Alex Benti, founders of Lead Sports, as we follow the money in sports tech amid a pandemic. This is the Future Sport Podcast. Future Sport Podcast is brought to you by 3 Advance. So let's take a moment to thank our friends at 3 Advance. These guys are ranked one of the nation's top app developers. Their user experience and cloud expertise has helped grow a bunch of sports tech startups, including Team Builder, T-Box Tour, and In-Game Fantasy. So if you're looking for a development partner to bring your future sport tech to life, look these guys up. Go to 3advance.com. They're the team to make it happen, and advance you will. That's the number 3advance.com, and tell them Future Sport sent you. Well, we were going to check in on the sports economic ecosystem of sports tech venture with Christoph Sonnen of Lead Sports and one of his co-founders, Alex Benti. 
But obviously, things have changed in the world where a lot of things have been shut down. And so let's find out and take an accounting of where we all are right now. Hey, Christoph. Hey, Alex. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Ram. Nice to meet you here. Yeah, thanks a lot for having us. Uh, Christoph, let me let me start with you. Um, just kind of you give me a general sense of business right now in the midst of the coronavirus in terms of investment. What is happening in your world? Well, obviously, like a lot of things are changing. Um, for us, our, our core business is investing in sports tech, early stage companies. Uh, we did run accelerator programs. Uh, we launched the first one in 2017 and had like three programs so far. Um, obviously, for this year, um, we decided to have a virtual program in 2020. So that was a major shift for us. But it wasn't that big extra whole last three years because we are global accelerators. So we're bringing like startups from all over the world. We're not like limited to US or Europe. Um, in fact, we have a lot of companies from Israel, from all around the world. And that was always a bit, bit challenging on the travel side to come in for three, four months. So actually, since we started in 2017, we were thinking, hey, uh, can we not have like more like virtual elements to the program? And now we've been forced to it, but actually we're well prepared um, and we quite like it. So for us, it's not a major change in our own business. And then on the other hand, we do invest in companies in this year. And we've been really lucky that unfortunate that we just made a capital call and fund we closed like our first close in fundraising. Um, so we have quite some capital to contribute and we're looking forward to do so and uh, identifying the best startups in sports tech. Obviously, what has changed too is a little bit like our, in our verticals and maybe Alex can have a word on that one, um, that where we're investing this I need different opportunities, I would say, right now. Yeah, so it's, you know, it, we, I always told people, right, that, that sports is such a great market to be in because it's crisis-proof, right? If you look back, 2008, 2009, many of the indications uh, were that, that sports actually, you know, wasn't hit as hard, it wasn't hit at all. And obviously, not this time. <laughs> sports has been hit very hard, but... In every crisis, there's also an opportunity. And, and I think that's really, on many fronts, sports tech is where the opportunity lies. And that's, um, you know, it's just ultimately this crisis is accelerating some of the trends we have been seeing for a while anyway. And that comes from, you know, for example, the at-home fitness trend is something that's clearly benefiting from the current lockdown, right? Obviously, gyms are closed. Uh, people are still looking ways to uh, work out, stay healthy. So whichever company is focusing on that, is right? and that, that can be large companies like Peloton, obviously, but they're all different kind of different ways, uh, different types of fitness equipment that is, uh, that is currently right being, being funded by VCs. And, uh, and, you know, so that's clearly a market that is currently benefiting from this. And, you know, we could even see, that even for mid for the mid to long term, that this could you know, result in a change of behavior with maybe people now realizing that working out from home actually isn't that bad and it works for me. And obviously, also the moment where they make larger investments in that, for example, acquiring a Peloton bike or a mirror or tonal or whatever it may be, you're more likely than also to then use it. Obviously, uh, even beyond the COVID nineteen crisis. And uh, you know, on the fan engagement side, it's it's clearly also you know. I think everyone, rights holders, broadcasters, they need to be creative now. And, and, and I think this crisis will also lead a lot of the, the players to invest even more in, uh, in technologies that enable, you know, digital experiences for, for consumers at home when they're on the couch. And, um, and, and I think, yeah, in that, in that sense, the crisis is definitely accelerating some of the trends. And, um, and uh, yeah, I think the last one I can mention is obviously esports and competitive gaming. I'm sure you've also seen the yeah. numbers. There's a, ma- a massive uptick in, in, in engagement there. So, um, and those are three of the trends we have been seeing anyway. And uh, obviously, some of our businesses that directly work with clubs, for example, be it football clubs, be it uh, another sports, that is currently not that easy. So, um, they're, they're definitely more when it comes to the COVID-19 crisis, but others are, are actually very well positioned. But I think everyone, one thing that is common for everyone is that obviously investor sentiment, there's a lot of uncertainty. So 
fundraising is not not easy right now for companies, that's for sure. Um, let me go back to fitness for a moment because clearly there is this big opportunity right now because people are stuck at home for however long it is going to be. But working out from home versus working out for the gym, that's not a new idea. That's been going on forever. Um, there's an, a million different programs that are out there. Peloton's not new. All this equipment really isn't necessarily new. Uh, what belief would you have that there is staying power to actually convince people to remain at home and conduct their exercise? Yeah, I mean, I would actually disagree slightly with you because we have, I mean, there, there are definitely improvements when it comes to technology. And one area that I could highlight is, the, you know, when it comes to fitness equipment for the at-home use and specifically in integrating computer vision elements into the fitness equipment. So that the fitness equipment truly is becoming smart and is actually able to analyze what you do in real time, right? So a lot of the products out there, and I agree with you, are from a technology point of view, not revolutionary, right? It's very, it's just a digital content distribution and you do your workout in front of a mirror that doesn't really see you and can't can really be giving you feedback in real time and it's not really interactive. But, you know, we are seeing that computer vision is definitely making its way into this, uh, this equipment and that makes it almost like you have your true AI-based personal coach that is watching you and is adapting the content in real time. Now, you know, we're not there yet, but, you know, as venture capitalists, we're investing in the future. Um, you know, if you just believe in the, in the standard at home uh, fitness equipment market, buy shares of Peloton. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there, there's, there, there are some very, very cool products when it comes to that that are truly changing the way um, that we work out at home. Right. Uh, this is Christopher. I think the, the big chance and opportunity here is exactly what you said is that people now willing to try more out, like try like more like digital coach, for example, out. Um, and we believe like uh, many of us are gonna be hooked to it uh, even after the, after the uh, Corona crisis. Um, let's get into fan engagement a little bit. Um, obviously that is really complicated right now if there are no sports to talk about and hopefully the leagues around the world are gonna figure out a way, even if it's an unusual way to get back on the field of play or the court and to conduct their games. Um, what are teams, what are leagues, what are companies looking at um, to try to maintain fan engagement right now? Yeah, I, I think, you know, to a certain degree, there's, there's, when it comes to the traditional content that they're usually providing right to the broadcasters, which is the actual games, I think right now that's obviously not possible. And as you mentioned, there are creative ways that, that all these leagues are trying to, to uh, you know, um, go back to playing in some fashion, right? I mean, in the NHL, I read an article that they plan on playing in North Dakota and have all the teams there, isolated teams, MLB in Arizona. You hear the same thing from, from Europe as well when it comes to the Bundesliga. And uh, so we'll see, but there's still some question marks when it comes to that, right? Also on the moral side. And um, and in the meantime, right? I mean, what, what you're seeing is um, a lot of the engagement and, and uh, is, is, for example, trying to be brought to consumers in, in, in the virtual world, in the gaming world, right? I mean, I see, I see all of this content now where, where athletes are competing against each other in B2K or B2K or Madden or you name it, right? So um, I see, you know, specifically when it comes to NHL, right, where all the games that would have happened now are being simulated uh, in the game. And, you know, it, it's... Um, yeah, obviously not not as good as the real content, but you know they're trying to cope with it, and I think that's also something that probably even mid to long term might stay right. Just, just that the rights holders and the broadcasting in general that they will try to combine um, more gamified elements into their their already existing traditional content. But there were perfect examples also Formula One races, right, where there's a physical race, but the virtual race where fans can actually participate may may become also very relevant in the future. And, uh, and I think elements like that is, uh, is, uh, are some of the things that they focus on. But clearly, I mean, there's no, there's no replacement of, of, of the traditional content on the actual pitches and on the ice or wherever it may be. Yeah, let's go back to that idea that like this is accelerating trends. Um, we've talked a lot about broadcasting with second screen experiences and what in at least in America, what the proliferation of gambling would look like and how that gets incorporated and 
just the the changing dynamic of how people consume sports, whether it's on mobile and the timing of it and all these different type of elements. Um, do you see something there that in this reset, you know, due to the virus, that there are some trends in the way that companies should think about how they can work with broadcast outlets, whether it's digital or linear, um, as they navigate the future of what sports content looks like? Yeah, I, I- I think in general, right, it is now is a good time to, to um, work on your technology, on your product, and to and to try to approach your customers, the broadcasters, to work on new experiences for for fans. Once we go back to playing, um, you know, games and broadcasters actually having content. So, I, I think it's tough, right, to have a general statement when it comes to that. But I mean, every every company in in its own way has to find its, you know. Its, a way to adjust the product and work on the technology right now. Well, one example that I can make is, is for example, uh, we invested in an Israeli company called Track 60, and they have a coaching product uh, out of their core technology, but they also have been working on using the technology for broadcasters, for example, and even sports books down the road, right? And that is something that they now have time working on and refining the process of technology together with these potential customers. So even though it may be difficult right now to really part on the coaching side with teams, you can focus your company and your resources now that we're freed up on other projects that, you know, mid to long term are more relevant for the business. So that's, uh, that's just one example how, how, how we are working with our portfolio and, uh, and, and now trying to take advantage and, and do the best with it. Obviously. This may be too new because all the, the lockdowns as we speak now are, are still semi-new and, and hopefully will pass. But I do wonder, because you're in the business of hearing from companies who are pitching you for investment, have you been surprised by anything innovative over the last month or two that is a solution in, um, in the time when we've had such an unusual thing happening in our world? I, I wouldn't say that that was surprised. By, by like something completely new. Um, but what I am surprised with, and, 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 and uh, I think a lot of the founders do a great job with adapting their companies and the strategies very, very quickly and uh, reacting to that new situation and trying their best to, to, to come up with a slightly different product or adjust a product so that it's even more relevant for the customers during COVID-19 and this, this, this recent crisis. So I haven't seen anything that, completely you know was was a new kind of product that was just really created for covid-19 it's more like small adaptions on the on the technology and product side that may be more relevant now than them before um, but i haven't really seen anything in the last month that was completely new so i mean you know for, for again one example i can make is something that i had seen before that already is it's just um and virtual reality is always like a big timing thing from an investment side, right? But at least, um, you know, virtual reality-based fitness and specifically that's something that you can do at home as well. That's something that I had seen before, but they are doing very, very well, these companies that I'm in contact with uh, right now. And uh, they're also t- taking advantage of the current uh, situation in, in a major way. Now, is that product completely new? Is that something that I have never seen before? No. But it's just amazing how well they were able to take advantage of the current situation and grow sales and and, and really, you know, during times where maybe a lot of other players cut back their marketing spend, they were actually actually ramping it up. So um, that's that's just one example. And I hope that answers your question. All right. Well, then let's be optimistic about it and talk about when things get back to normal, whatever that looks like at some later date. Um, and, And let's just kind of circle back to where I thought this conversation would be when we started talking about doing this interview, which is... What are you all excited about in the sports tech space? What, what do you expect to see out there? And you can use examples of things that are in your portfolio or trends that you were seeing in the sports tech space. What are you excited about when, when we do get back to normal life again? Yeah, I, I think there's, there's one common trend that I think that is relevant across the different verticals, how we call it in the world of sports, and that's personalization. I think the viewing experience on a fan engagement side will become much more personalized. So you will be able to watch the game from the perspective you want. You will have the information, the data about the game that you want. And, you know, there are already some, com- I mean, uh, replay technologies that were acquired in 2016 by Intel to create the Intel Sports Group, right? They allow broadcasters to have these 360 degrees um, re- uh, replays, right? In the future, these type of technologies will allow that 
same you know that same experience to be transported live in in pretty much real time to households to fans so you will be able to pick any perspective you want right and when it comes to actually us doing sports and uh, and playing sports i think also there right using data not just on the professional level uh all the way down to the amateur and youth level i think that that will be a game changer for everyone so much more accurate tracking of data um through simpler setups all of a sudden not just professional teams anyone can afford them and and then through that just better coaching injury prevention engagement uh, creating engagement around it gamified uh, new ways to play sports and uh, i think that's that's what keeps me very very excited and optimistic right we're only at the very beginning you always see that trickle down at first technologies arrive at the professional level they're being tested there and validated at the highest standards and from there they, they get simpler cheaper and they scale down to to youth athletes and amateur athletes and that's that's obviously where a big big impact is as well so um yeah, that, that that gets me very excited. We have some companies in our uh, in our portfolio that are leveraging exactly on that trend. That's uh, that's, that's that's from my side really. What 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 keeps me very very excited. Christoph Sonnen and Alex Benti are the co-founders of Lead Sports and the Advantage Sports Tech Fund. Thank you both for for joining us. Um, and be safe, be well, and hopefully we can have this conversation in the near term and not talk about a pandemic. So thank you both for being with us. Thank you. Stay safe. Thanks a lot for having us. <laughs> that will do it for us this week. As always, the future is now. This is the Future Sport Podcast. I'm Bram Weinstein. The Future Sport Podcast is brought to you by 3Advance, developers of sports tech apps that are AI-powered and UX-focused. So if you're looking to create some apps for your startup or your sports biz calls for some artificial or business intelligence, you should check out 3Advance. They're incredible. Go to 3Advance.com. That's the number 3Advance.com.